0: I would suggest to you that, that these are not so much masculine and feminine traits as they are just human traits. And I would also suggest to you that some human beings naturally skew in certain directions. And that's okay too. The problem is when we value one trait over another. I, I mean, uh, you know, I, I often think of this idea that men are tough and resilient and fight through pain and keep going. Just watch the women's U.S. soccer team. You'll see all of that on display.
1: Hi, my friends. This is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Kirk Show. My mission is to help people get in touch with their emotions and feelings, connect to themselves and being a source of healing. My job on this show is to invite the world-class experts who deconstruct the practices, routines, and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. I have a request for you this time. If you have been listening to this podcast for some time, and if you find it useful, please, please help me in spreading the word about this little show by telling one person in your friends and family. And my today's guest is Mark Green. Mark is an author, speaker, and consultant, and he helps organizations worldwide better understand how our dominance-based culture of masculinity is blocking diversity and inclusion efforts. Mark offers teaching, coaching, and workshops on powerful relational practices designed to center healthy, innovative work relationships, allowing men, women, and non-binary people to create more connected, meaningful work lives. As a senior editor for the Goodman Project, Mark has spent over a decade deconstructing our binary-riddled dialogues around manhood and masculinity. Mark's newest book, Remaking Manhood, further explores the damaging effects of dominance-based masculinity on men's lives and all those lives we impact. He makes a clear, unambiguous case for why men, women, and non-binary people must work together to co-create a healthy masculinity of connection. And now, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Mark Green. Mark, welcome to the show.
0: It's good to be here. Thank you for having
1: me. Thank you for taking your precious time to talk to me. And I thought I would start by rolling the clock back to your childhood. Your father Mm. taught you to love unconditionally. Could you share your relationship with your dad and how he taught you to love unconditionally?
0: sure my father i mean i'm sort of an interesting case as a as a dad who is currently raising a 16-year-old son because i had my son very late in life and my father for his generation had me fairly late in his life so i'm my son who's 16 years old is one of one of the few if not the only kid in his cohort who can say that his father or his, that is his grandfather served in the second world war and grew up during the great depression in Richmond, Virginia, and was in fact for a time lived in an orphanage. So that's a, that's a pretty big deal in terms of our family's generational history. We go back to a time when America was, when the economics in America were brutal. And then out of that, we ended up fighting a a world war that was also catastrophically brutal. So, my father grew up on the streets of Richmond, Virginia, basically bare-knuckle brawling every single day just to try to hold space for himself. He told me actually fairly late in life that he had had an eye which was kind of looked off in the wrong direction and I never knew or understood that about his childhood but it would have made him a target even more so. He didn't have that when, when I was growing up and because they would repaired it surgically in the military. So he's bare knuckle brawling, he's fighting, he's collecting newspapers and getting uh, 10 cents a, a ton or something, turning them in for recycling. He's struggling every day to get through life. And he had a stepfather for a long time His mother, uh, he was in an orphanage because his mother, his father abandoned him and his sister very early in life and uh, his mother came down with tuberculosis. So, she went to a place called Pine Camp and of the 28 women who went in, in her cohort, three came out alive after two years and she was one of them. But during that time, he was in an orphanage and when she came back, she remarried a young man and he was in the habit of punching my father in the face on a regular basis. So, my dad grew up with a very violent stepfather and all of these things, he did not pass on to us. That is to say, he made the conscious choice to break the cycle of physical violence. But he is a very emotional man. He struggled with a lot of the, of the mundaneness of, of middle-class life in the 1960s and 70s. And eventually, he divorced my mother and disappeared for a while. But before he did that, my father, my experience with my father was always that he was warm and affectionate and really was the only person in my in my early childhood who made time for me specifically, made me feel seen, held me close. And I actually have a, a brief story about what that looked like in my life. Can you please share that story with us? Yeah, sure, sure. He, my dad would, would, work, come home. My mother was raising four kids. I was the youngest. She usually went to bed by nine o'clock in the evening and he would sit on the couch and watch television. And eventually he would get up and go into the kitchen and put some ice cream into a blender and turn it on and make himself a milkshake. I was a, I wasn't so much of a sleeper as a little kid when I was four or five years old. I, I was a listener. So I would lay in my room. And when I heard that blender start up, And I don't know how it began but at some point we had a little ritual and I would go to the door of my bedroom which looked straight down the long hall of our house to the couch and I would just open the door a little crack and I would peek out the door and my dad would be down there and he would look down the hall toward me and he would gesture for me to come out so I would sneak out of the room so as not to wake up my brother and I would run down the hall and sit down next to him as, you know, The Late Show was coming on in Houston, Texas in 1964. And there next to him would be two milkshakes, and he would give one to me, and I would tuck in under his arm, and The Late Show would come on. And it would be, a you know, an old black-and-white movie that came on after the, the news in those days. And there was um, there was a song that they played. They put up a little title card, had a moon and a city and said the late show on it. And uh, it's funny they call, you know, whatever the late show now with (laughs) Stephen Colbert. But back then it was just a movie. They just put a movie on. There was no late night programming and they had a song. And to this day, I will tell you that I don't remember much about my childhood. I don't remember much of the difficult times after my father left. I don't, there's a lot that's just a blank for me but that song is as clear as a bell in my head. And if you don't mind, I'll I'll take a run at it real quick. (laughs) The Late Show, nothing could be finer than The Late Show. Nothing could be finer than the greatest of stars right on your own TV. And, And I remember that. I remember being tucked in under my father's arm and I would drink that milkshake and we would watch a Cops and Robbers movie or whatever it was for a few minutes, maybe half an hour. And then he'd say, okay, buddy, back to bed. And I would- put down my cup and I would go back and get in my bed and go to sleep. After my father left, and honestly, I don't remember the day he left, I don't remember arguments in the house, I don't remember what led up to it or how it came to be, I don't remember any of that. But I remember my father holding me under his arm and and us watching TV together.
1: Do you remember how old were you
0: when he left? I was... I believe I was seven.
1: And I'm just curious, did you ever try to ask your mom what happened?
0: My mother was singularly uncommunicative about about all of that. And she continued to do the work of raising, you know, four kids, and she eventually remarried and had another child. And my experience of my mother was that she was just getting through the day. And I think her experience of that marriage was probably very difficult. I think her experience of raising a family was pretty much like most women of her generation, that it was just an it was, you know, decades of hard physical labor and and relatively thankless tasks every day, one piled on another, on another, on another. So, her willingness to talk about any of that was pretty limited.
1: And how have your relationship with your 16-year-old son has evolved, consciously or unconsciously? How do you parent?
0: Well, we talk about sometimes about the shifts that fathers and mothers are making generationally. I imagine my father saw little or nothing of the kind, kinder side of his parents or of society at large for that matter. You know, his kindnesses to me were, were a byproduct of a society and a culture which had become a bit more, for lack of a better word, you know, economically stable, civilized, reasonable, Still a very difficult time in my father's generation was a generation of of violent racism and sexism, but the economic, the imminent economic collapse of the Great Depression was no longer something. I mean, the economy was booming at that time. Now you get to my generation in terms of parenting and, you know, I didn't have to say to my son, my dad, you know, hit me, but I'm not going to hit you. So the thing that I brought to my own son was a fierce commitment to be in his life, regardless of whether I got divorced from his mom, which ultimately I did, regardless of what other factors came into play. I promised I would not let, you know, culture or society or the rules of being a divorced dad or any of that separate me from him. So my parenting with my son has been really not focused on my role as a dad or his role as a, as, as a son. My, my focus with my son has been on our relationship and what we co-create in the back and forth of, of this parenting process. And he's changed me as much as I've changed him. And I've left myself open to that. And I've tried to create a container and for him an emotional space for him where he can bring his whole self, where he can bring every aspect of himself, which is, which the larger culture may or may not encourage in boys, you know, and that may be emotional expression. It may be caregiving. It may be tenderness. It may be sorrow, whatever those things are. I try to keep a space open to hold all of that and to share some of that in an age-appropriate ways with him in terms of my own experience of the world. And in doing so, I think I've kept the conduit open for communication. So when people say, ah, my 16-year-old, he never talks to me. (laughs) Mine does. Mine does. In what
1: ways have you
0: changed? Mm. Gus, my son, was born and he made the same seismic shift in my life that that kids make to every single parent in the world. We are all invited to take on something that that is truly life-changing, which is to be a caregiver to another human being. And women do this often because culturally they're expected to, but dads and fathers are beginning to take this on too. The stay-at-home dad movement. Just generally speaking, fathers are, are saying, even now during the pandemic, as as they're being asked to go back to the office, they're saying, "No, I, I don't want to disengage from my family. I want to be I want to be in my kids' lives. I don't want to be missing in action, you know, nine ten hours a day." So this level of engagement that fathers are having with their son, you cannot you cannot be truly engaged, especially with an infant and a toddler and a young boy or girl or non-gender binary kid, you can't be engaged at that level and not learn some powerful lessons about yourself. Not the least of which is that we as as men in America are raised in, in what is often referred to as domination based culture of masculinity or man box culture. To hide our emotions, to be tough and strong, to always be leaders, be certain, be you know breadwinners not caregivers this sort of tough stoic masculine ideal breaks down very quickly when you when you're caring for a small child in an in an ongoing way and you suddenly find out that you have this whole other range of emotional capacities and by capacity i mean strengths abilities so you have the ability to be tender to 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 do this idea of caregiving to be there for someone and to be emotionally available to to express in emotional ways to be joyful to be giddy to get down on the floor and play with them to rediscover all the aspects of 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 playful joy that that we remember from our own childhoods and also you know my my son's mother and I divorced when he was 4 and for years, I was his his primary caregiving parent. So, I was the guy who was getting up and getting him ready for school and making his breakfast and drawing those little notes and putting them in his lunch bag and walking him to school. I remember to this day the, the when we first moved into our apartment on the Upper West Side in New York and I knew I had to go three or four blocks to get to the subway train to get down to his school and I thought, Is he going to be able to walk that far? He's so little. And I remember his hand in mine and I remember us walking to school. And before long, it was this remarkable journey every day to get from 11th Avenue down to 8th and moving through the crowds of people and talking about ideas and discussing things and and doing little sidestepping dances around the cracks in the curb. And all of these things that come in those intimate moments with our children changed me. I began to understand how powerful my ability was to be there for someone else and if my father's absence taught me what loss is like for a boy when someone who loves him and cares about him is suddenly gone for years, I was able to be there with my son and to take his hand in mine and to go down those streets in New York every day and to be there at two o'clock to pick him up from school and ask him how it all went and have those conversations in the park. and that changed me that changed me into a person who actually understood that my my strengths as a human being included you know being tough and when i needed to and being a leader and being strong and all those supposedly masculine capacities which are really just human capacities women display those capacities all the time but i also had this other range of capacities to be this warm tender caring person to be for him who my father was on the couch when I was a little boy.
1: Thank you for sharing, Mark. I appreciate it. And I want to ask you about man box culture and remaking manhood. So before we get into that, when did you realize you needed to write and share about masculinity and man box culture? What happened? What were the events leading up to in
0: your life? Yeah. Well, Gus, again, my son was the catalyst for all of that. I, after he was born, I began writing a blog, you know, a stay-at-home dad's blog. Because although I was the breadwinner for my family, I was always a, a contractor working from home. So I was always in his life. And uh, so I began blogging about being a stay-at-home dad because as soon as you do that, I mean, that step alone, just being with your child on a regular basis breaks half the rules of the man box right there not the least of which the rule that says, you know, be a breadwinner, not a caregiver. So, I began to get these messages back from the culture, you know, in terms of how people looked at me at the park. If I was there with him on a weekday, you know, what did you lose your job? Who is that guy? You know, Mm -hmm. why is that man in the park? You know, you you get these reads from predominantly female caregivers who are justifiably concerned, you know, about the safety of their kids and just the presence of a man there seems so atypical to them based in terms of how our culture operates. So those messages kept coming to me and it didn't take long for me to start asking larger questions about masculinity, not only in terms of how I was viewed in the larger culture, but what messages were coming at my son, who was already a year or two years old, and what were those messages going to be and how were those going to impact his life? So before long, I I was writing articles about, about what it be, means to be a man in, in in American culture. And and I discovered the work of people like Niobe Way and Judy Chu. Judy Chu wrote a book called When Boys Become Boys, Niobe Way wrote a book called Deep Secrets. And these books were about the impact of our dominance-based culture of masculinity on boys beginning in infancy, and then and and in the case of Niobe Way's research, Judy Chu studied boys in pre-K classes. She was with a cohort for two years. Niobe Way studied boys in early to late adolescence. And what she discovered was boys were giving the message over and over and over again daily, hourly in microaggressions from other boys, uh, from their parents, brothers, sisters, coaches, teachers, media, that if they wanted or needed to express emotionally, if they wanted or needed close friendships, that they were not being, they were not doing manhood correctly, that they were being, quote, little kids, girly or gay. And Mm -hmm. so, Nayabi Way did research with with boys in early adolescence and she would ask them, "What, what does your best friend mean to you? And those boys at that age would use the word love unashamedly. They would say, I love my best friend. And the other thing they all said was, without my best friend, I would go crazy. If I didn't have him to tell my Tell my feelings to and my and what's going on with me and all that I would go nuts, and then she goes back and interviews the same boys in late adolescence. And this this constant microaggression, this hammering away at them about don't be a little kid girly or gay. This this process by which they were convinced to let go of those close friendships is really evident by late adolescence. And the boys would say things like, "Yeah, my best friend, you know, Joe, he." He lives around the corner, but I don't see him that much anymore. He's a great basketball player, no homo and they'd throw that in to make sure that, that everyone understood that if they said anything nice about this close friend that they used to have, that, that, that there was nothing gay about it. Another boy said, yeah, that close friendship, it's kind of on a crossfade, it's kind of fading away. And by late adolescence, these boys have let go of those close friendships and their, their rates of suicide become four times that of girls their age. So it's very important to understand the studies and research around the way that our culture of masculinity shames and bullies boys out of connection, out of emotional expression, and trains them into this sort of narrow man box performance of masculinity, which again is toughness, don't show your emotions. Another rule of the man box is have control over women and girls. Another one is be heterosexual, not homosexual. And and so this narrow, brittle sort of cardboard cutout version of being a man in America gets enforced on all boys. And by extension, all girls, all non-binary kids, everybody has to deal with the fallout from that. But boys become emotionally stoic and disconnected. And the challenge with that is that it is in the expression of emotion that we actually form relationships. In fact, emotions are born out of the back and forth of relating, the little moment by moment expression and gesture and tone and communication that goes on for all of us all the time. So, If young boys are being convinced to hide their emotions, what they're hiding is their authentic response to that back and forth of relating. So when we tell boys, don't show your emotions, what we're really doing is cutting them off from being able to form authentic relationships, real connection, those joyful relationships that that boys are talking about in early adolescence in Niobe Way's work. And the end result is boys are trained out of that authentic connection. And then they're slotted into this Hierarchical, dominance-based masculinity, where if you want to validate your masculinity, you do so by dominating the boys and men around you, and ultimately the women around you, and and maybe the the folks who are who don't look like you, maybe folks from a different religion, folks with a different immigration status. All of this is about a hierarchy where white men are at the very top of that hierarchy and and all boys are trained into treating people like they're either above them or below them on that hierarchy, which is ultimately very isolating. You can't have an authentic relationship with someone who who dominates you and you can't have an authentic relationship with someone you're bullying or dominating. And when we talk about a culture of masculinity where the only way to validate your masculinity is to dominate someone else, then it's very isolating.
1: Then what is healthy masculinity and how it differs from toxic masculinity because your work is advocating for diverse masculinity could you please emphasize on that what is diverse masculinity and how it differs from toxic masculinity
0: yeah yeah well the idea here and and if you give it a moment's thought, it, it really makes perfect sense. The idea of a gender binary, where men are slotted into this sort of narrow, brittle performance of masculinity on one end, and and then they define for women what 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 you know what it means to be a woman on the other far end of that binary, it, it doesn't actually make any sense for us because for most of us in manbox culture, in order to perform masculinity in that way, we're all essentially hiding significant authentic aspects of ourselves that don't fit in oh I was always very emotional as a child well I'm not anymore I hid that away for a young man who's gay that that restriction in manbox culture is beginning to loosen up now but but imagine you know a generation ago if a young man was gay he had to hide his sexual identity from every boy and man in his circle and that's a massive part of ourselves and when we when we talk about hiding aspects of ourselves, authentic aspects of ourselves, it can be little things like, like, oh, I, I you know, as a kid, I read comic books, but I wouldn't have told anybody, you know, or to really big things like our sexual identity. But whatever the amount of things are that we're hiding in order to fit into that sort of narrow performance of masculinity, the distance, how far that thing is, how big it is, and the and the tension created by hiding that. Is what defines the level of anxiety we have every day as men. And that anxiety is born out of the understanding that man-box culture isn't just the rules for being a man. Uh, traditional masculinity, in and of itself, aside from this idea that you have to be heterosexual or that you have to have control over women and girls, that particular part of it is just that's just violence. But the idea of traditional masculinity isn't in and of itself problematic. It's the enforcement of it as the only acceptable way to do masculinity. So if we instead consider a huge spectrum of masculinities, go plural with it, or even more so just take that gender binary and consider all of those positions all the way up and down that spectrum as being equally valid expressions of being human, then then we as men or non-binary people or women can find the place on that spectrum that's the best fit for us. We don't have to hide huge parts of ourselves anymore. We can bring our full authentic selves to the performance of being a human being. So manbox culture limits us, restricts us, creates huge levels of anxiety for for boys and men, and it does it, if you'll remember, by policing us whenever we express emotionally behave in ways that aren't acceptable and the way that we're policed is through the denigration of the feminine. What are you, a sissy? What are you, a girl? And this process of microaggression shuts down the time that we would normally have as boys to do the trial and error learning of how to connect across difference, how to express emotionally in nuanced ways. We often say men don't know how to express emotionally. Well, it's because they were cut off from a very early age and didn't get to do the trial and error work. And in the same, at the same time, they're being taught every time they're policed back into the box. And and boys aren't, little boys aren't doing this, you know, weekly or daily. They're doing this hourly. These microaggressions are, what are you, a sissy? What are you, a girl? End up shutting down boys' emotional collection in the world and teaching them that women and girls are less. So Mm -hmm. we falsely gender universal human capacities for connection, for forming relationships as feminine. That is empathy, emotional expression, caregiving, connecting across difference. All of those ideas that are considered to be soft skills, they're powerful human capacities for forming a network of relationships, which is actually what constitutes strength for human beings. Human beings are not individually strong. They're strong in community and in networks of connection. We take all those capacities, we wrongly gender them as feminine and we bully them out of boys. At the same time, we're doing something similar to girls. We're telling them don't be too loud, don't be too tough, don't be too strong. Women leaders to this day are given an impossibly narrow range of performance to be acceptable. Oh, she's too assertive. Oh, she's not assertive enough. Well, guess what? It's a trick. It's a game. We don't want women leaders to succeed because girls and women are less. So we give them an unreasonable amount of expectations whenever they finally do achieve a leadership. And then we we continually police their responses and behavior in that context. So understand that we're stripping away the full range of human capacities from our daughters and our sons, half from each. So we're asking them to go out into the world with one arm tied behind their backs and succeed.
1: <laughs> do you know someone who has a mature healthy masculinity and a good balance with femininity.
0: I know I know many men who do. And this is all part of the of the work. We call it we call it men's work. And for me there are two places where we can intercede to keep this man box culture idea from from driving boys into isolation and disconnection. One place we can do it is as parents or as grandparent as a grandparent or as a teacher or a coach anyone who has a long-term relationship with a young man can do this work which is to, to create that container where we invite them to bring their their full selves to tell us what they think is going on in the culture around them to invite them into conversations where they're teaching us we can do that work with with our kids when they're very young and if we do it well enough for them they reach a tipping point where they've learned to express in nuanced ways, where they, they've learned the value of, of speaking about from their whole selves. And they come up against this gender binary and they go, why would I do that? That's, that's ridiculous. I don't want that. But if we fail to do that with children, they get policed into this limited emotional expression, into this hierarchy of dominance and bullying. They end up having huge amounts of anxiety Man box culture teaches them that if they're, if they're going to be successful, I have to police all the boys and men around them. And ultimately, in, when the anxiety becomes too much, it comes out sideways as violence against women or against other men. When we get to that place, when we didn't get the, the care and connection we needed as, as children, then we can do what's called men's work. And men's work is what's done by organizations like the Mankind Project, and it's men who come together in groups in circle to begin to learn to reconnect with each other and trust each other and form form bonds and form connections where we can support each other and and become each other's allies and create connection again in our lives and the work i did this work with the mankind project a lot of men do and what i'm discovering about my own life is that i now for a long time, I was very distrustful of other men in, in, in my work life, in my social life. I always felt like they were critical of me. And of course they were because I was trying to do this man box version. I did it for, for, for five decades. I was performing this man box version of myself, which is essentially a shallow surface level, nervous, reactive policing version of being a person. So I was policed and policing others and doing all that stupid game around who's the who's the toughest guy at the table, who can drink everybody else under, who gets the most women, you know, who's making the most money, all those ridiculous competitive games. And eventually I reached a point in my life where I, I was going through my second divorce. I had lost a number of jobs. I was hitting the wall. And most men in man box culture may be able to play that game when they're in their twenties or thirties or even their forties. But sooner or later, we age out of that stuff because it's not about being; it's about doing. Did you get another? Did you get another woman last night? Did you make some more money yesterday? Well, fine. But what about today? Have you done it again? Have you done it again? How's that all working for you? Are you the toughest guy in the room? And <laughs> so eventually, we 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 age out of it, and we can't everything, succeed at it. Everything has an expiration date. Well, when when it's about doing, now when it's about being, who am I authentically as a human being in relationship to others? You don't age out of that. If you, you can be a great grandfather and be loved by the people in your community and in your family, if you're connecting in authentic, meaningful human ways. But this thing about doing, I got the fastest sports car, I got the best of this, I got the best, the biggest house, that stuff we all fail at sooner or later. And the problem here is that for many men, they've been so trained out of the ability to connect with other human beings that they collapse in that moment. Now some of us are lucky, we, we have someone in our life who says, hey man, come join this group, we, you can change this, you can do your work. But a lot of men, I mean this, you know, we talk about a hierarchy of masculinity with white men at the top. The theory is that I as a as a white man at the top of that hierarchy, if it's so great, I should be be the winner, I should be having the best time, right? But it's that population, white men, older white men that have the highest rates of suicide dramatically higher than any other population. So we're talking about a system of masculinity that's broken top to bottom, nobody, nobody feels at peace, nobody feels safe, nobody feels comfortable. So. Some of us are lucky enough to make our way into a men's group and do that work and if there's a man listening to this right now, if you're tired of being bullied and pushed and and chased and trying to keep up with stuff that doesn't feel real to you, I invite you into a community of men who are doing that work and there's a lot of different organizations that do it. Find one or find a male therapist who understands men's issues Or, or pick up a book. But you can change your life into one of connection and meaning and healthy masculinity, which is not a vertical hierarchy of of dominance, but a a lateral masculinity of connection and community. You can make that change. And if you do, you're going to find that that life becomes much more relaxed, much more peaceful, much more connected. And you're going to begin to learn and understand what it means to share what's really going on for us with the people in our lives.
1: I attended Mankind Project last year, so I did three weeks. Mm. And I would like to highly recommend Mankind Project. The guys are amazing. You know, you hang out with all the men. And I would like to say that that was my first few Zoom calls when there was no women. I, I have been part of many calls where there are mm. women most of the time. So, but in that Mankind Project, it was a very different experience just to be hanging out with different men and share our experiences and vulnerabilities.
0: That's wonderful. So, I would highly recommend Mankind Project. Well, and, and you know, the sad thing about this work, and I, I run into this a lot with older men who do this, is we look around and we realize, my God, the years I wasted. There's a lot of grief that can come up for men when we do our work because we realize we have been peddling this absurd bicycle this treadmill for decades and all of the connection and and meaning that we that we missed out on in our lives so if you're a young man don't wait don't do it like I did it I, I I didn't get there till I was 55 and and I'm look I'm glad I got there better late than never and I and I feel much more at peace and much more joyful now in my life but man, Would would it have killed me to go when I was 30 to even know, to even realize what I was up against? You know, my book, The Little Me Too Book for Men, is really an exploration of this construct, the man box, and how it shows up uh, as isolation for boys and men and as violence against women, sexual assault, and all the other issues, how it shows up in in the workplace, how we are trained out of connection, and how we can choose to to come back into alignment with our communities and ourselves and our families. And and if you want to understand the, the, the full arc of this construct, including Niobe Way's work and Judy, how it all fits together, that book is 75 pages long. It's brief, takes two hours to read. It's a quick, clear outline of what's going on for us in dominance-based masculine culture.
1: Understanding masculinity for a man is one thing. And then, then what is the role of women to understand masculinity? Sometimes women can also enforce man box culture. Un- unconsciously, they may not be aware that they are behaving and projecting their behaviors in a not so healthy way Then, what women
0: can do about it. Absolutely. I've met many women who, who've said yes for a long time. I, I didn't understand that what I was expecting of the men in my lives was that they were A, invulnerable. And B that they that they were performing masculinity in this uniform way because that's just the way men are. They didn't, you know. I mean, we, I, I talk about in my work the distinction between culture and identity. For for men, this man box culture, this idea, this this sort of brittle ideas of, of what it means to be a man begin when we're infants. And and they're brought. these ideas are enforced by our mothers, our fathers, our brothers and sisters, kids in the neighborhood, coaches, teachers and so on. It's so ubiquitous, it's so uniform across all of our experiences as young men that it's like the, the water we swim in or the air we breathe, it's invisible to us. So the first step in the work is to get men, women, non-binary people, I, I mean typically non-binary people are already on to this. But men and women to understand the distinction between masculine identity and our dominant culture of masculinity—that is, the prominent culture. Culture is arguably—it's um, not a singular thing. There's, there's a—we there, all exist in a. Series of intersecting cultures. You know, our work cultures are maybe a sports culture we're part of. You know, the the micro culture of our family, the the larger culture of masculinity. You know, political cultures. All of these cultures are intersecting, right? And this dominant culture of masculinity is invisible to most men. If you say, "Where did you get your ideas about what does it mean to be a man?" They'll say, "Oh, my my uncle or my dad." You know, or so we have this challenge with men. When we start to talk about masculinity, and you used a phrase earlier that that, that I don't actually use, I don't use the phrase toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. I talk about culture because when what? you go to a man, well, when you go to a man and say, "Look, there's a problem with your identity," that's a very that's a very difficult thing for a man to hear because you have to understand that that men. Are bullied and policed and bossed around by the men in their circle, beginning at a very young age. And they have worked incredibly hard to strip away aspects of themselves that don't fit and to do this damn right. thing right. To do it right, to do it the way the culture demands it of them. So when you say, hey man, you know, there's there's something going on with this masculinity thing, if you can introduce them to a conversation about culture, this larger culture of masculinity then they begin to say oh there's a di- there's a there's a there's a little bit of daylight between that larger culture of masculinity and my own identity my masculine identity it's in that little bit of daylight between the two that they can begin to ask questions about well, why do i believe what i believe about women or why do i believe what i believe about about how men should be so the the challenge that we that we face is that that dominant culture of masculinity informs women's views just as much as it, in, it informs men's views. But I will tell you this, the conversation you and I are having right now, when we talk about what goes on for, for boys, stripping away their connection, When I when I speak to women, I say, look, this is super important. We have to take a moment and imagine the amount of violence and trauma it takes to convince little boys to give up those close friendships, these joyful close friendships. And and women begin to get a more compassionate view of why men do what they do. We're not not forgiving men for the violence and, and aggression and sexism and racism and all the things that are built into dominance culture, but we can at least understand what happened to these joyful, happy little boys that turn them into these stoic anxious men. It's a recipe for isolation and disconnection. And the, the, the numbers, the data on social isolation in America, we have studies out there. You can look them up. One out of every two Americans feels sometimes or always alone. That's one significant piece of data that's come out of these studies. And when you are socially isolated, when you are lonely, and this is a byproduct of a fiercely individualizing culture, right? We're all individuals. We're not community. Then the health impact is equal to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. We literally die earlier from man box culture, which teaches right. us to do everything on our own and to not connect and to dominate those around us. It's, it increases, dramatically increases our levels of heart disease, neurodegenerative diseases, things like diabetes, obesity, depression. All this stuff goes up because we don't have a circle of close, authentic, healthy friendships that we can rely on during times that are challenging for us. And this circle of men that you can create in men's work, that these men that you met, Nishant, when you went and did the work, they are not policing us. They're not, they're, they hold us accountable. They ask us to really seriously self-reflect about the ideas we have, but they are not bullying us into dominance, they're not doing that game anymore, and 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 that in that direction is where we have to go if we want to f- literally live longer lives.
1: Yes, thank you so much, and, Mark.
0: And let me speak back to time. women one more time. You're you're exactly right that women enforce the man box. You're exactly right that women need to understand when they're carrying that message as well. Women internalize patriarchy. They internalize man box culture, and if they're not conscious. Of what they're doing, they may find that a man in their life begins to want to do his work and begin to open up more emotionally. And sometimes a man will begin to do that work and it's frightening for for a woman. She may say, You know what? I I don't want to see that. Don't show me your grief and your sorrow and your pain and and all of the challenges that this work brings up for us when we we let the genie out of the. Other women are fine with it. They're like, Hey, it's been a long time coming. I will support you in this work. But but women definitely have a role to play in men's work and a role to play in helping liberate men from these narrow confines of the man box, even as they are fighting for their own survival in the context that the man box is creating.
1: And it really doesn't matter if what what gender we have men, women, or anything in between. We all have masculinity, we all have feminine energies. These are energies and these are different traits. Strong, confident, empathic, feeling, emotional, compassionate, kind. We all have it. If we are becoming if one trait is becoming too dominant, then that may not be the right thing to do.
0: Right. Well, I would suggest to you that that these are not so much masculine and feminine traits as they are just human traits. And I would also suggest you that some human beings naturally skew in certain directions and that's okay too. The problem is when we value one trait over another, I mean, you know, I, I often think of this idea that men are tough and resilient and fight through pain and keep going. Just watch the women's US soccer team. You'll see all of that on display. And in that context, That's appropriate. We don't say to women in that context, hey, you seem a little aggressive to me. We're like, yeah, scored a goal, good job. So we have to start thinking about the contexts in which we immediately place limitations on the masculine, the feminine, the non-gender and start seeing all of these capacities as universally human and also know that different human beings are going to skew in different directions. I said earlier that traditional masculinity is not in and of itself a problem. I cannot make the argument that we need a full range of masculinities and then point to one version of it and say, except for that, we don't like traditional masculinity because of whatever. I'd be doing the same exact thing. Some men are going to skew that way. Some women are going to skew that way. Some non-binary people are going to skew toward traditional performances of what we used to call masculinity. It's all good if we can create a culture and a society that values all of these performances equally, then it's all good. It's when we say, man box culture raises its ugly head, not with traditional masculinity, but when we say that is the only acceptable way to do it and we begin Mm. bullying people into that.
1: Yes, Mark, I'm wondering that how men and women should cultivate healthy masculinity and healthy femininity in their romantic relationships. What can they do? What would be the best practices to bring the healthy version of these traits and energies?
0: Right. Well, again, you know, the idea that, well, let me just say something that that, that will strike your ear as odd. I think any man who chooses to can bring a much healthier version of femininity to a relationship if he chooses to. Why we take certain aspects and define them in a relationship, in an intimate relationship as feminine and prohibit men from doing them is part of the challenge we face as human beings. I think men and women who are seeking a healthy relationship first and foremost need to do their work and come to terms with who they are in authentic ways. I tend to be this way. I'm not going to hide that from my partner, I'm going to bring that and I'm going to find a partner who appreciates that in me. This is the the difference between playing our roles in relationships versus centering relationships themselves. And We call this relational intelligence, we call these relational capacities. These are capacities which acknowledge that in every relationship, and you and I are are creating this right now, Nishant we this is the first conversation we've had we don't know each other that well we're on the internet we have our video turned off and yet <laughs> and yet nishant we're creating a relational space we're creating a shared space in which our relationship as two human beings is in its nascent early stages but it's there and if we can see that co-created space as being the we right There's you, there's me, and then there's we, there's what we're co-creating. In that relational space, we can use things like capacities, like listening with curiosity, considering context, reframing our stories, being playful, holding uncertainty. All these ideas in which we allow what's happening between us to emerge, to be co-created, to be changed and shifted over time because human beings change and shift over time. As I'm shaping you, you're shaping me. In this way, relational intelligence, the idea that the relationship gets centered over the roles and the tasks, those roles and tasks are important, do them, fine, but don't make it about your role as a man or my role as a woman or your role as a a non-binary. The roles are fine, we know what they are, but what we're creating in relationship with each other, that's the powerful piece. And I would suggest that anybody who wants to better understand relational capacities, I mean, my partner Hababa and I wrote a book called The Relational Book for Parenting and it has a lot of those ideas in it. You can see how relational capacities play out in parenting and we used a lot of these ideas to help, help my son express and connect and, and talk about what was going on for him. There's a lot of games and stories and ideas in there for little kids. There's ideas for, for kids as they get older. But we can choose in relationship to another human being to co-create that relationship, to focus on it, and to emerge and change with that person as I'm shaping you, you are shaping me.
1: And Mark, in your book, Remaking Manhood, I read that your wife and your partner is responsible for remaking manhood. So I'm wondering. In what ways she was responsible in remaking manhood with you?
0: She accepted me. She accepted those aspects of myself which were not typically approved of in masculine culture. I I refer to myself as someone who's gender non-binary and I say that first and foremost because I hate the binary. I think the binary is incredibly destructive. And when you when you say there's an appropriate role for men and an appropriate role for women, you're leaning right into the kind of dialogues that are used in in white supremacy culture and in male supremacy culture. So I hate that I hate that gender binary and I want it gone. So I call myself gender non-binary, but there were other aspects of me which also reflected that. And she made space for that for me. She also very much encouraged my work. I was originally writing about fatherhood on Facebook you know, years ago, ages ago. And those those statements might have been of some value to someone, but they disappeared. They went away into the ether. She's the one who encouraged me to begin blogging. And she has always encouraged my exploration and research and work around masculinity. I say very simply and clearly, without her, nothing that I have done would exist because I became who I am in relationship to her in daily conversation. She's a couple and family therapist. She teaches that at the, at the graduate level. She's a theorist and has her own work around play and around all of the things that happen in dialogue and conversation. So, without her in my life, I don't know who I would be today. We've been, She and I have been married for 11 years. And I, I honestly don't know who I would be. I don't know who my son would be. I don't know who she would be because we've all changed each other.
1: Do you have routines and rituals to bring joy and love in your relationship with her?
0: I do. I do. We have um we have a lot of things that happen in our kitchen. We have a very large open kitchen space <laughs> and we and and you know, Saliha is, is from Delhi, India. And we have a spice drawer that's bigger than most people's, you know, it's huge. It's huge. And, and the, the beautiful food that, that I have learned to cook, that, that she shares with us, that, that my son knows how to make, we have many rituals around the, the creation, discovery, experimentation, cooking of food. And I think food in India is, is such a core celebratory activity in a world where in a world where there's a lot of challenges going on for people food can still be this central place where 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 people share pleasure and joy and connection so we have rituals around that we have rituals simple little daily rituals where we end up maybe in the morning after we get up and do whatever needs to be done right away where we sit and talk and and she may talk about her work we may talk about you know, a conversation, we'll probably be talking about this podcast tomorrow, talking about what it was like and what, you know, what 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 may have emerged from it. And and in that way, conversation is a central piece of the rituals of our household.
1: On the joking side, I, I still have to learn how to cook
0: Indian food. I don't know how to cook Indian. Well, come, come to our house, Nishant. We'll, we'll be happy to, <laughs> we'll be happy to share be what honored. we know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Mark, it has been a good conversation with you so far. And do you have any parting thoughts, any closing thoughts, anything else we can explore now that
0: we did? It's been a pretty wide ranging conversation. I want to just thank you for letting me plow through all of that. There's so many intersecting ideas in this work about human connection and communication and and how men can live better lives. and, And by virtue of that, stop doing so much harm. To all the people whose lives we am. So, thank you for letting me run through all of that. I want to thank the listeners too for for hanging in there with me. Thank you.
1: And this conversation really feels like meditative to my ears
0: for Mm. sure. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah,
1: I wanted to have you on the podcast because last year was very transformative in my life uh, to understand masculinity and feminine energies because I, I had many breakthroughs where I realized that I was comfortable with a certain group of men where my brain was perceiving them to be soft, kind. Uh-huh. And when I perceived a man to be strong, to have a strong build, something something my brain was perceiving that this man is strong. And I had to work through my childhood days where it is coming from, where that pattern was coming from. So I huh. started making more and more friendships with men. I realized that we can have love with another man. Oh yeah. Even if it doesn't have to be romantic all the time, (laughs) if it is romantic, that is another story, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be romantic. You can hold hands with men. You can have love and compassion with another man. So that was the main and main thing that happened to me last year, which has, I'm very proud of that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. Again.
0: Thank you. If anybody wants to find me on, I'm on most social media platforms simply at Remaking Manhood.
1: And we will put all the links in the show notes and
0: people can find everything on the blog page. Thank you so much. Well, I hope we can speak again. I would love to hear some of your stories.
1: Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https: colon slash slash me and dot me. you can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life you are not alone in this journey we all struggle in life there is no shame in talking about it i go through my highs and lows i get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life you can also do this you got this don't judge yourself you are doing the best you can and thank you so much again